Greetings. This is The Filter with Matt Asher. On May 2, 2011, a group of Navy SEALs landed two specially designed Black Hawk helicopters in Abbottabad, Pakistan. They penetrated a nearby compound, and within minutes, they had found and killed the world's most wanted terrorist, Osama bin Laden. Early reports said he hid behind one of his wives and pleaded for his life, though this detail is now harder to find. Ten hours after being shot in the head, bin Laden's body was dumped into the sea at an undisclosed location. We know this story to be true because we were told it by the press, and they were told it by a president they considered trustworthy. The president got his information from America's top intelligence agencies, and we are told he watched a direct video feed. This feed was recorded, of course, but no video of the event has been released, nor have any photos of the body been seen by the public. There are very good reasons why no images have been released and why the body wasn't buried. We know there are good reasons because we were told the reasons and reassured that they were very good ones. If it seems like I'm skeptical of the official account of the killing of Osama bin Laden, I should make the following clear. I have no specific information that would contradict any specific part of this story, nor have I gone down any rabbit holes in search of unofficial theories. There are reasons to believe the official narrative to be true, and, as is the case with all official stories about U.S. military actions, there are reasons to doubt. More about that later. The one undeniable fact about this story is that it has been intentionally put in a black box by those who told it to us, and that black box was figuratively tossed into the sea at an undisclosed location. Barring a leak of the raid video or some other highly unlikely event like the indisputable appearance of the real bin Laden, there is no way for anyone in the general public to verify or contradict the official story. It will forever remain a black box to us. Before dropping out of a basically unknown journalism school, two credits shy of graduation, I learned what seemed to me like the most important rule of reporting. If your mom says she loves you, check it out. Journalism meant doing work, and that work involved investigating the truth behind everything you reported. In other words, all journalism is investigative journalism. That doesn't mean talking to both sides or faking objectivity or a lack of bias. It means extreme inquisitiveness, aggressive searching for underlying truths, and the presentation of information in ways that illuminate as much of the relevant complexity, context, and nuance as possible. Journalism means you take every story that comes to you as a black box, one that can't be properly reported on until you open it up. Go to the relevant city council meetings, look at the court documents, speak to the witnesses, file a FOIA request, maybe even go undercover to get an inside view of the real story. The world is filled with these black boxes, each one with its own label or multiple labels. As a journalist, your job isn't to report on the labels. Your job is to find a way to pry open the lid and describe, as accurately as possible, what's inside of it. 
Bias in your descriptions is inevitable and just choosing which boxes to open will have a profound impact on the final narrative. But at the very least, your job is to give as honest and thorough a description as you can of the contents, along with proper caveats about the unknowns you weren't able to resolve. If it seems like I'm ramping up to say there was once a golden age of journalism where this happened, a paradise lost, that's not exactly where I'm headed. American journalism has always been infested by bad faith actors and people who took certain black boxes at face value because doing so aligned with their ideological beliefs. Perhaps most famously, the New York Times Moscow-based reporter Walter Durante won a Pulitzer Prize for his intentionally blind and disturbingly psychophantic reporting on Joseph Stalin. This tendency to lick the boots of left-wing dictators seems to be an ongoing tradition in the field. I had my own direct experience with it in the form of a professor who insisted that Fidel Castro, then the forever and uncontestable leader of Cuba, shouldn't be called a dictator because that same label wasn't always applied to non-communist strongmen, an argument that seemed superficially valid but essentially subverted universal ethics to tribalism, a nice preview of what was to come in the age of intersectionality. So no, there was no golden age of American journalism when honest and unbiased men in fedoras pursued the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But it does say something about the particular epistemological bankruptcy of our moment that the most famous news organization to actually do this work is also the most reviled and will almost certainly never win that prestigious prize once given to Stalin's best press agent. Something has changed. Deep in our DNA as Americans used to be an endless itch to peer behind curtains. This culture was so mainstream and pervasive that it was the accepted birthright of even those who, in our semi-accurate imaginations of a patriarchal and repressive past, were assumed to be deprived of agency and voice. Thus, we have a popular 120-year-old novel turned into a blockbuster movie that stars an impetuous young woman endowed with an aggressive curiosity and a refusal to accept suspicious narratives at face value. For most of my life, peering behind curtains was not just something we did, it was something we demanded to do. It was a core value in the liberal project we were all collectively engaged in. It tied together scientific advancement and went well with the magic pixie dust we called democracy. You know, that thing that dies in the dark. For the first 20 years or so of its wide availability, internet access did more than anything else in history to let everyone pull back curtains and share what they found there. Much of that sharing, to be sure, was of things that appeared to be behind curtains but almost certainly were merely imagined. So-called conspiracy theories flourished, bad information and cherry-picked evidence abounded. Everyone with a modem was now seconds away from learning about the CIA program called MKUltra, or reading strained speculations about how Stanley Kubrick filmed the moon landing and hid clues about it in The Shining. The best 
and worst of this ability to look behind curtains collided with the release of the Podesta emails by WikiLeaks just weeks before the 2016 presidential election. Podesta was Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman, and when the curtain was peeled back on how the Democrats made their sausage, it wasn't pretty. We learned about Hillary's cozy alliance with the party to take down rival Sanders and her low opinions and non-existent connection with everyday Americans. After the Podesta emails leaked, obsessively motivated amateur detectives pored over the messages and came up with dozens of illuminating gems. Thanks to WikiLeaks and this army of online autists, voters got a partial peek into Clinton's black box of dirty deeds done at considerable cost. Those same autists also uncovered an odd tendency for Clintonistas to refer to pizza in odd circumstances. Establishment press outlets quickly locked shields around this apparent anomaly and derided all attempts to figure out what was being encoded as delusional conspiracy thinking, a narrative reinforced by the tendency of some autists to use the uncertainty over what was really being discussed as an invitation to believe all manner of poorly supported theories, including, most famously, the guy who was so sure that there were enslaved children trapped in the basement of a pizza place that he raided it with a rifle. The Comet Pizza incident is a reminder that just because a box's label is clearly suspect doesn't mean that any particular alternative theory is correct. This fact may seem obvious, but we get this and the converse so wrong that we need to take a detour into likelihood theory and medieval thinkers to clear things up. Hold tight, this ride is going to get bumpy for a bit. Eight hundred years ago, a scholastic philosopher named William of Ockham wrote that plurality should not be posited without necessity. Ockham's rule of thumb became a figurative razor he used to slice off possibilities that seemed overly complicated or, as his razor is now used, highly unlikely. I'm going to quote what I wrote about the topic on statisticsblog.com a decade ago, because what I said then is not only still relevant, but, as I'm now convinced, Occam's razor has become the most insidious and damaging meme in current discussions of epistemology. From my blog post, as read by my wonderful wife. In simple terms, the idea of Occam's razor is that, whenever possible, simple models are to be preferred. Note that Occam tells you absolutely nothing about whether a model or theory is good or bad, useful or worthless. It's a rule of thumb. And while not necessarily a bad one, in practice it tends to act like intellect retardant to put out active minds who question existing, often simplistic, beliefs and scientific constructs. Let me make this very clear. Occam's razor doesn't prove anything. In particular, and despite how it is commonly used, it doesn't show that the more likely or simple explanation is the correct one. Unlikely, complicated things happen all the time. I'm going to unpack my quote because the distinctions here can be subtle, but they pack a huge punch. If you dig into most arguments that lean on Occam, you get at the following kernel of belief. If something is unlikely, it didn't happen. This is so obviously false, it can only be understood by example. Imagine for a moment that you toss 10 perfectly balanced coins at once. 
The most likely outcome here is that you will get five heads and five tails, but this most likely outcome only happens one in every four times. The probability that you get five heads and five tails is one quarter. The rest of the time, you get more heads or more tails. Taking a step back, the most likely outcome is that the most likely outcome doesn't happen. This is true all the time in life and science. Looking back at any event, we tend to describe it in ways that make what happened seem like it was the most likely outcome, or even inevitable. But that's a kind of hindsight bias. Even if the entire universe, ourselves included, is one giant machine that can only result in one outcome with 100% certainty, it's nonetheless still true that from the limited perspective of cogs like us, the best we can do is make imperfect predictions about the events to come. It may be true that the exact weather in your hometown is predestined to a particular pattern of sunny and cloudy days, but no matter how well you build your model, it will almost certainly fail to be accurate within just a few weeks. Such is life and such is the state of our ability to predict phenomena like the weather. We all understand this intuitively, but we don't teach it explicitly in schools and we rarely confront it directly. Instead, we tacitly accept the culture of dismissing possibilities that don't strike the person describing them as likely. We allow, without extreme pushback, discourse that looks like, I discount that possibility because it's highly unlikely. This ties in directly with the black box problem in that of all the possible things a black box could contain, the most likely one might actually be the one on the label. But at the same time, that label might be almost certainly wrong. To bring it back to the story this episode began with, of all the individual specific theories about what happened when SEAL Team 6 landed in Pakistan, the most likely one to be true is that the events transpired exactly as we were told they did. But that theory, for reasons I'll discuss later, almost certainly contains at least some fabrications. To see how I came to that conclusion, we have to talk about how we can talk in a meaningful way about the contents of black boxes. I'm going to provide some suggestions for living in a world filled with black boxes that journalists seem unwilling or incapable of opening up for us. I can't provide any support on the psychological level other than to say, I feel your pain. It sucks to be living through the descent into what previous filter guest Vin Armani has called the dim age. But I do have some thoughts on the proper way to analyze the contents of boxes which you can't open. The first principle is this. Start with zero faith in what's on any label. Begin with the understanding that evidence-free claims are just that, evidence-free. They may be true, but your baseline of credibility should be zero, and you should resist any efforts to bully you into believing the label to be true based on appeals to authority or attempts to paint you as a denier or conspiracy theorist for asking questions or for conditioning your belief on actual evidence. Anytime those making official claims about the contents of a black box or their tribal allies express hostility at demands to examine the box, this should be a huge red flag. 
There are, at times, legitimate reasons to hide what's in a box, but resistance to auditing the contents, even if done by independent third parties who would protect sensitive details, is a really bad sign. Another tool for analyzing black boxes is to consider the track record of the reporting party. I fly from time to time, and when I do, I trust a pilot-slash-plane combination that might as well be a black box to me. I don't demand to inspect the plane's mechanicals or interview the pilot in advance. I trust the label, this will get me to Miami, because the track record of commercial aviation, at least in terms of safety, is excellent. If you think about the historical results of each flight, like opening the lid on a box that claims safe passage from A to B, the vast majority of the time the label gets it exactly right. If you are evaluating a label that says safe and on time, that's a less credible claim. Other considerations in evaluating the label on a black box include, does the person or organization doing the labeling have an incentive to lie about the contents? How likely are they to get caught if they mislead? And if they do get caught, how likely are they to face consequences for the misleading? All of these factors may seem commonsensical or obvious, hardly worth pointing out, but it's amazing how often agencies with a terrible record of labeling boxes and zero accountability for lying demand that people accept their labels at face value. And that most certainly includes the U.S. military, whose historical approach to revealing sensitive information is best summed up by Colonel Jessup in the movie A Few Good Men. You can't handle the truth! There's one more factor in evaluating black box claims, one you may or may not have access to. Sometimes information will leak out of the box, or some investigator will manage to lift the lid just enough to sneak a peek. If what they see is consistent with the label, you can increase your confidence that it's correct, though it's always worth considering whether those investigators are getting an unbiased, if partial, view of the contents, or whether their view was highly directed by the organization that controls the box. That beautiful and immaculately clean subway station you were shown during your trip to North Korea? What are the chances they all look like that? On the flip side, if your view reveals any discrepancies with the label, it's best to assume the entire box is filled with the wrong stuff. Back when I was still chasing success as a tech entrepreneur, I would often review supposedly ready-to-release code I'd commissioned. As a rule of thumb, if I could find three bugs in the first five minutes of review, there was no point in continuing. The implied label of ready-to-release was a lie. The code was crap. In cases like this, those responsible for the black box contents will often tell you, okay, sure, you found some discrepancies. I'll address them and send it back to you. The problem, of course, is that if you reach into a box labeled gold nuggets and pull out a pellet of dung, there's only one justifiable conclusion you can have about the rest of the box. What you saw is what you will get, almost certainly. Offers to swap out specific pellets of dung for nuggets of gold in the context of a large box that's hard to inspect thoroughly offer no real reassurance. Again, this may seem commonsensical, but we were living through an attempt by the establishment press to bully the people making just this commonsensical argument into shutting up. 
Witness a recent exchange between ABC News employee and former Clinton aide George Stephanopoulos and Republican Congressman Rand Paul. Uh, Senator Paul, let me begin with a threshold question for you. Uh, this election was not stolen. Do you accept that fact? Stephanopoulos says, in effect, you need to accept that the bucket is filled with gold. Rand says, we've reached inside a couple times and come up with dung. Stephanopoulos says, sure, there's always going to be issues with an election, and then goes to the standard second move, asserting that there is no evidence of widespread fraud. Basically, yeah, you may have found a dung pellet or two, but there's always some dung. You need to accept that the bucket contents are gold enough. Stop trying to pull back the lid and peek in. I don't do current events on this podcast, and by the time this episode posts, the Rand-Stephanopoulos exchange will likely have dropped off the public radar. But look at how nicely it fits the pattern I described above, and then watch how often you see this pattern repeat itself in our public dialogues. At one level, this is just a debate between a senator and a partisan journalist. But at a deeper level, the demands made in the face of a black box or a box that's barely pried open tell you about the relative power of the actors. Imagine for a moment the dynamic in a conversation where the person auditing the box contents is the one with the power. If a god king reaches into a bucket you claimed was filled with gold and pulls out dung, you almost certainly wouldn't live long enough to make the claim that it was mostly gold. And if you were allowed to plead your case before losing your head, you should probably beg forgiveness and swear to do a much better job inspecting the bucket, instead of trying to claim that the king's fistful of poo was just an unlucky aberration. On the other hand, if a god king hands you a sealed bucket and says it's filled with gold, but you happen to see a pellet of dung fall out, how aggressively are you allowed to question his label? I've written before that if you want to know who has the power, look at who gets to set the terms of acceptable conversation topics. Do you think Rand wanted the topic of discussion to be, why won't you just accept the facts? After dropping out of journalism school at that no-name university, I went back to school about a decade later and completed a degree in statistics at the very brand-name University of Toronto. I can't say I'd give that school a ringing endorsement, but I did have a handful of excellent classes and world-class professors. One of my favorite memories of the U of T happened in an outstanding class on the theory of computation taught by the outstanding Faith Ellen and, unlike my other CS classes, attended mostly by inconceivably smart Russian kids who would probably get to choose between getting paid to work for the NSA or getting even more to hack them. In a discussion with one of these students, Ellen pointed out that if you start with a contradiction in your logic, then you could get any statement whatsoever to follow from this. Without missing a beat, the Russian replied, Excellent, so I will use my ability to prove anything to show that... And on he went, with the next link in his chain, to get to the result he wanted. Of course, to quote a much-memed insurance commercial, That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works which should be obvious to anyone except for Russian prodigies, but nonetheless trips up many of us when it comes to reasoning about our world. In case that previous example wasn't clear, here's one of my favorite jokes. 
A tourist finds himself lost in Chicago, looking for the corner of Michigan and Congress. The tourist pulls out his map, studies it for a while, then flags down a man in a suit walking by. He hands over his map and asks if the suit could point him the way. After studying the map for a bit, the suit looks up with confusion and asks, "Why are you using a map of Cincinnati?" The tourist replies, "Well, that's the only one I have." To put the point here in a pithy phrase, if your inputs are independent of reality, so too will be your conclusion. This is true in the extreme example of the Russian student and the lost tourist, but it's also true when the data are highly uncertain, especially when the errors they introduce are multiplicative. Perhaps you've heard of the Drake equation. It's a way to estimate the number of advanced civilizations in our galaxy. You do this by multiplying a handful of numbers together based on data points we might be able to reasonably estimate, and several other data points. We can only speculate about. The result is a completely meaningless number that only a handful of presumably smart physicists, nonetheless, decided to take seriously. In some ways, it's even dumber than trying to use a map of Cincinnati to find your way in Chicago, in that the Drake equation has multiple interdependent estimates with complex and unknown correlations. By the time you've put in every speculative term with unknown. But likely huge error bounds. Your final answer is no better than what you'd get by consulting a magic eight ball. If you really want to reason about the existence of aliens, your best bet might be to look at what's on your 2021 bingo card. More about that later. For now, though, keep an eye open for how willing people are to develop elaborate models and make confident predictions on the basis of data or models that. When closely examined, are highly imprecise or only vaguely related to the actual facts on the ground. I aggressively pointed this out in the early days of the COVID pandemic, when it became clear that we had mediocre testing coverage with an unknown false positive or negative results, a set of strong economic incentives to inflate certain data points. And counting procedures so bad that at least one motorcycle crash and gunshot victim were listed as COVID deaths. My objections, amplified by the similar objections of others, did nothing whatsoever to prevent every single media outlet from running tallies of the exact numbers of cases and deaths. From what I saw, not a single scientist was given airtime to explain that every recommendation based on our COVID data or models was built on a foundation of quicksand and should be considered no more trustworthy than your five-year-old's recommendations for the best rocket to take us to Mars. Speaking of trips to the red planet, one of those who raised concerns about the data was SpaceX entrepreneur Elon Musk, who tweeted. Something extremely bogus is going on. Was tested for COVID four times today. Two tests came back negative. Two came back positive. Same machine, same test, same nurse. I think it says something about our particular moment that the most favorited reply by far begins with the finger wagging dismissal. It's called science, Elon. The message here couldn't be clearer. Quit trying to look behind the curtain, idiot. Science means accepting whatever labels our experts have slapped on the black box. By presenting data that cuts against the narrative, the only thing you've done is show yourself to be toxic and dangerous. 
a claim made in the rest of the dismissive tweet and by many other highly favorited replies. The dim age depends heavily on useful idiots who unquestioningly accept the black box labels and harass anyone who doesn't. Those in power will repeatedly test the limits of how much bullshit they can get the useful idiots to swallow because people who crave power like to use that power and because this serves as a useful metric of obedience levels. So you now see the powerful trying to get you to say that a man who puts on a dress is indistinguishable in all ways from women or make you cover your first mask with a second one because they've labeled that even safer. There have, of course, always been powerful people and groups who demand unquestioned acceptance of their narrative, and we've always had, and continue to have, regimes that execute the overly inquisitive. What we haven't had in the West, at least until now, is a dominant culture driven by efforts to shame or cancel people for trying to pry open the lid on those black boxes. When did that start? Do you remember when corporations first began to embrace the image of the free-thinking rebel in the 80s and 90s? Remember the iconic Apple 1984 commercial? Remember Apple's Think Different? Remember the rebel camera from Canon, pitched by that iconoclastic tennis star who wore denim shorts? When did you realize that Google was destined to become one of the most malignant corporate forces of all time? For me, it was when I found out that their model was don't be evil. I have a theory and I should say it's just speculation, but it seems to me that if you want to see which way our culture is headed, look at the simplified messaging put out by today's corporations and predict that our cultural reality will soon reflect the exact opposite. The free thinker becoming a corporate mascot was like a redskin becoming a football mascot. It was a sign that the dangerous had been defanged or destroyed, converted from threat to friendly ghost. For Google, this mascotting was clearly aspirational. For the broader culture, we paved the cow paths of those who chose the path less traveled, locking these in as the only acceptable ways to think differently. If you want to predict what's to come, look at which previously off-road paths are being paved. Speaking of which, it's time to talk about UFOs. For most of my life, to seriously consider evidence of aliens was to wander well off the paved paths of acceptable discourse. In the pre-cancel culture era, this didn't make you toxic or unemployable. It didn't mean your views were so unspeakable that they had to be stuffed in a black box and sunk to the bottom of the sea along with your suspended Twitter handle and frozen bank account. It just made you a kook, someone with views that were out there. At the beginning of 2021, I asked my high school-aged daughter what was her wild card prediction for the most extreme story of the year to come, something to top the wild 2020 that had just wrapped up. Her pick was the same as mine, UFOs. Figuring out which paths are being paved isn't some esoteric skill. Most of us, at any time, in any social situation, can figure out which views are acceptable to state out loud and which are verboten. As Bob Dylan puts it, One amazingly unexamined aspect of human social life is how these kinds of weather beacons spread so quickly and so pervasively without any official memo going out. 
Even more amazing is how it can spread among not just people like myself who explicitly understand how a serious story in The New Yorker about ETs coming after a number of high-profile discussions on the frontiers of the establishment like the Joe Rogan podcast serve as open season signs for respectable people to talk about the subject but also how the beacon spreads to teenage girls whose media consumption doesn't overlap with mine in the slightest. Though perhaps I shouldn't be surprised, women are particularly sensitive as social barometers and tend to be the most aggressive enforcers of social norms. Regardless, we still have the question of what it means that aliens are queued up for the 2021 playlist. Murder Hornets, after all, were on the list for 2020, but they got less airtime last year than that Four Non Blondes hit from 1994. The previews don't always tell you much about the movie, and you never know who will be playing the part of Macbeth until you open up your playbill and check for a Xerox copy of Substitutions. All that said, what should we make of the mainstreaming of UFO talk? This much is clear, and it has been for a very long time when it comes to the existence of aliens. The very subject is a black box, and whatever governments do or don't know about their existence, we have been kept almost entirely in the dark, at least until recently. For my own part, I'm hesitant to speculate about what's in that box, other than to apply one of the most important rules for analysis when you are in a condition of extreme ignorance. Begin with what is called, in data science, a maximally uninformative prior. That's a fancy way of saying assume as little as possible, which I think is an absolute must when talking about something as otherworldly as ETs. Here are some of the assumptions people tend to make about alien life that, as far as I can tell, have zero reason whatsoever to believe. The first is that, measured against any of our characteristics, alien life will deviate by less than one order of magnitude. To make this more specific, the classic little green man is smaller than us, but not by much, and has a bigger head and eyes than us, but not by much, and has the same number of limbs, each with a similar number of fingers or toes. We tend to imagine alien creatures as warped versions of ourselves. But the principle of maximal ignorance would have to begin by looking at each metric along which life could be measured and imagine extremes well outside of what we normally imagine. Aliens might be capable of moving a million times faster than us. They may be made up by swarms of smart dust, or they might be a biomechanical organism the size of a solar system. To ask whether they will wish us well or want to conquer us reveals only the limits of our own imagination. Aliens are the ultimate black box, and our tendency is to imagine that black boxes will be filled by things that are recognizable to us. This is a terrible assumption. I'd call this the recognizability bias or the imagination bias. We think black boxes will be filled with that which we can imagine or a funhouse mirror version of things that we already know. For my own part, our ignorance about alien life is exactly why I think actively trying to communicate with them by sending out directed signals is a terrible idea. We have no reason whatsoever to believe that an encounter with such beings would be anything but an absolute disaster for the human race. This is one black box that, all things being equal, I really don't want to see us open, at least not until we've mastered interplanetary travel and weapons capable of blowing up the galaxy.
This much is clear to me. Should those in control of this Roswell-sized black box lift open the lid on it, or shouldn't E.T. pry one of its long green fingers far enough out of the box that its existence can't be erased from our collective memories with a few blasts from a Men in Black flashy stick as effectively as the existence of Hunter Biden's lost laptop was zapped away? Then the label applied by The New Yorker to these visitors is going to tell us much more about what the establishment wants than what the celestial visitors are after. In other words, the story we will be told is the story that's most useful to those who tell it. The label slapped on that floating black ship will be the one that is maximally beneficial to those with the power to control the narrative, while still holding enough of an apparent kernel of truth to be parroted by the useful idiots. I'm going to modestly call this the Asher Principle, though perhaps it's already coined by someone else. The Asher Principle says that the so-called solution to any problem you see being pushed will be the one that maximally benefits the system, as drawn from the set of all solutions that prevailing narratives support without complete narrative collapse. From this principle, a couple corollaries immediately pop out. The first is that when you see a narrative coalesce quickly about an event, that narrative isn't random. It has to have some connection with the event, but it will be exaggerated in a way that makes the desired solution easier to sell. So, for example, suppose a bunch of yahoos have just stormed the Capitol building. If you are part of the system, your desired outcome is to drive acceptance for deplatforming of your political enemies and to use the three-letter agencies to persecute their supporters. In that case, the narrative you want is that the event wasn't just a mostly peaceful protest that got out of hand. It was an insurrection, a coup attempt, an act of domestic terrorism. Use those labels often enough and forcefully enough, and you may even sucker some hapless enemies into using them too. Before long, your solution of weaponizing big tech and the deep state to take them out becomes graspable. The second corollary is that official narratives are never driven by good faith actors, especially at a time when the million pound hammer of government is always in play, there will be strong incentives by vested interests to make sure every event gets slapped with the label that strengthens their own grasp on the hammer and their ability to use it. I don't know if this is a black pill perspective or even next level Vanta black. Maybe it's just recognizing the basic reality that the narratives we see pushed are the ones that help expand the range of what the powerful can get away with, and that hatred or fear are often the most useful tools for expanding that range. There is no insinuation here that the narratives are decided on in back rooms by a conspiratorial cabal. Narratives are floated by everyone, all the time. But once an elite institution like the New York Times lays down the scent of a particular one, you'll see how quickly establishment journalists dutifully follow it, or else face excommunication from what Curtis Yarvin calls the cathedral. Not convinced that our world works this way? I wasn't either until the pandemic industrial complex hit its stride. Back in March, I was naive enough to believe that the panicked lockdown response would wipe out the wealth of powerful interests, and that this officially sanctioned solution went against entrenched interests. But it turned out that in order to stop the spread, 
it was only non-essential people and small businesses who were placed on the chopping block, while almost every group with political clout, from teachers to bankers to government workers to big businesses like Amazon and Walmart, were spared or bailed out. The lockdowns were a decidedly ecumenical angel of death, sparing all those with the blood of the peasants smeared on their front doors. What I'm presenting in this episode of The Filter is a theory that connects labels, black boxes, and power. In this model, power is the ability to drive the adoption of self-beneficial narratives, and one measure of power is the largest sustainable gap between narrative and reality, or one's ability to get others to unquestionably accept the label you've slapped on a black box you control. In the filter episode about the new colonists, I discussed how, in the times of the old colonists, every microaggression by an indigenous actor confirmed their inherent savagery, while every Indian massacre by the newly minted Americans was wholly justified as rational self-defense. Anyone who questioned this narrative risked literal expulsion from the fort's protective walls. An immediate corollary of this theory is that monopolies of power corrode cultures of truth-seeking, which is why, now that one tribe and its coalition of fellow travelers has nearly absolute control over the media, the university system, cultural production, big business, and the federal bureaucracy, we are seeing increasingly aggressive demands that black boxes be accepted as is, and that we tolerate major divergences between claimed labels and the observable samples that slip out. The narratives we now get are brazenly disconnected from reality. They hand us sealed buckets and demand we treat their labels as gospel, even though the last 10 times we've managed to reach inside a bucket labeled gold, all we've ended up with is a fist full of dung. Do you remember, as I alluded to, all those months of arson and shattered windows and curb-stomped storekeepers that was labeled at the time mostly peaceful protesting? Perhaps you can still recall, as also alluded to, how the recent theft of the House Speaker's lectern by a shirtless guy in a buffalo hat was labeled an insurrection, a coup, and a grave act of domestic terrorism. You might be tempted to ask, They can't seriously expect us to swallow that tripe! To which the reply is, essentially, Please help yourselves to this tripe! You are now 100% expected to swallow that tripe unless you're one of those alt-right Nazi scumbags who should be punched. And you're not one of those, are you? There is, I should note, a flip side to apparent flexes of absolute narrative power. Aggressive demands that others accept your black box labels at face value aren't always unambiguous signs of power. The Wizard of Oz yells most loudly and shrilly at Dorothy right before she pulls back the curtain to reveal a small man putting on a terrifying act. For better or worse, the dim age we are entering comes with the side of mob empowerment that can't possibly be deplatformed. Sooner or later, the pitchfork-wielding crowds will stop battling each other and begin ripping down the curtains. What happens after that? is anybody's guess. Thanks for listening to The Filter with Matt Asher. You can find show notes at thefilter.org or follow user Matt Asher on the socials.